Uh, every uh, time that Christ appeared to people uh, after his brutal death by Roman crucifixion, uh, he had one thing in mind. He wanted to assure them that he had, in fact, risen from the grave. Uh, he had prophesied as, as such on multiple occasions. So one case in point is Matthew 17, verse 22, where he prophesied this. It says, when they came together in Galilee, uh, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Had the, how did the disciples respond? Grief. Uh, they were filled with grief. Uh, and if anybody ever asks you, is Jesus a prophet? Was he a prophet? The answer is yes. Not just a prophet. He was the prophet. And so he prophesied that uh, he was going to be um, degraded, rejected by his own people, uh, killed and crucified. But that would be followed by his exaltation. Uh, the disciples were grieved. You have to stop and ponder, as I did this week. I wonder, if I was them, why would I be grieved? Uh, well, there are uh, 333 uh, prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. Uh, there are 60 ex extremely exact ones, and there's 333 additional ones uh, that uh, Christ fulfilled, each one of these. And so as the, uh, the disciples looked at his life and looked at his ministry, uh, they easily uh, drew the conclusion he must, in fact, be the Messiah. Think, think of the checklist. Um, was he a son of Abraham? Thank you for being with me this morning. Uh, this must be the spiritual side. What say you? Was he a son of Abraham? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, within reason. Uh, uh, was he a descendant of the tribe of Judah? Yes. Uh, was he a son of uh, uh, was, he, uh, uh, was he raised in Galilee as prophesied of Nazareth? Yes. I mean, you could go down the whole long list. Uh, was he able to perform miracles like Isaiah said he would, like raising the dead, giving new legs to the lame, eyesight to the... I mean, this was all prophesied 800 years before his death. Did he do all those things? Yes, all those things. So if you were a disciple watching all these things, you would say, check, 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 check. It's him. So you would be excited, not full of grief. But then the Messiah comes and he tells you, oh, by the way, men, um, my, my mission's not going to end with exaltation and, and destruction of the Roman Empire. It's going to end with my destruction. They were filled with grief. Uh, but this was not the first time that he told them that he was going to die and then be resurrected. Uh, Matthew 16, if you go back, verse 21, uh, tells you by way of prophecy from his own lips that this was going to happen. Uh, then right as he's heading up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is in the mountains and it's uphill. And I don't know if you've ever been. It's very beautiful there. A lot of trees, gorgeous terrain. The flora and fauna is amazing. And he says he's going up to Jerusalem uh, to be offered uh, as, the, uh, as, the, as the lowly king coming uh, on the donkey as on, at the beginning of that crucifixion week. Uh, in verses 18 to 19 of chapter 20, he tells the disciples again, he's going to be crucified and then he is going to be resurrected. They didn't get it. I don't know about you, but uh, do you understand what the word hard head means? Hard head? <laughs> Yeah, or dense, that's a little easier word. You know, you read something in Scripture, and you're like, mm, I don't really agree with that. I'm going with this. That, that's what they did. So they focused on the messianic concept of a king who would destroy the enemies of Israel, and they didn't like those things which prophesied the death of Christ. And so they had great hope in who he was and what he was going to do, but the hope evaporated when he started prophesying his own death. They were filled with grief. So to these... Uh, stubborn uh, followers, uh, Christ is going to uh, reveal himself. Uh, he's going to do it in stages, as we see uh, post-resurrection. Uh, uh, and he's going to try to move all of his disciples, uh, minus Judas, of course, who committed suicide for betraying the Christ. He's going to try to move all of them from uncertainty about his resurrection to certainty. 
Uh, and that is what you find when you look at Luke chapter 24. It's an interesting little historical narrative, as I said in my prayer, uh, recorded by Dr. Luke, a medical doctor. And if you were a doctor, if anything is true about you, you like details, right? Who would want to go to a doctor to do surgery who said something like this to you? Well, I don't really pay attention to the charting and the details and the test. I just kind of do my thing when I open you up. Yeah, so Dr. Luke pays strict attention to the details. And so what he's going to show us here is the main motif of this little historical narrative is concerning his resurrection, what does Jesus want? He wants to move you from uncertainty to certainty. So if you're a Christian, like these two disciples are on this particular narrative, uh, he's gonna, they, they, they were clueless uh, about the fact that he was going to be resurrected. Uh, he's going to deepen their understanding of the resurrection because he's going to ha come have a talk with them. Uh, it also is applicable to a non-Christian who you have questions about Christ. Uh, did he really rise in time and space? What are the evidences? I need proof, incontrovertible evidence. You have questions. He's going to give you evidence and answers to your questions. So uh, the passage really pertains to all of us. So he's going to move us from, did it really happen? Because I'll, I'll posit to you, if he truly did rise from the grave in time and space, that changes everything, everything, from how you view science to how you view marriage to how you work at your job to the hope that you have of what lies there. It changes everything. So what I want to do is, as we move through this message, is I, I've broken it up into snapshots, pictures, because it's like little snapshots, uh, and there's going to be four of them. And, and what the Lord is going to do is going to methodically and strategically move these two men uh, from a place of hopelessness, because the Messiah had died from their perspective, to a place of great hope that he is alive. Snapshot number one. I would entitle this the distinct dilemma. They had a dilemma, uh, because they're descending from Jerusalem down to Emmaus. Uh, and it says here, it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. It was basically about uh, seven miles downhill uh, northwest uh, of Jerusalem, going toward Tel Aviv. It says in the text, and behold, and that's emphatic in the Greek text, uh, to grab your attention, the way it's constructed. Uh, two of them, uh, these are disciples of Christ, were going that very day to a village called Emmaus, uh, which was about seven miles uh, from Jerusalem. And so uh, these two men are, are having a conversation, their dilemmas. They are uh, conversing that day regarding what had happened, these two Christ followers. Um, it says they were that day conversing among themselves. Uh, the, the Greek word uh, is homoleo, which means they were having an engaged, passionate, passionate discussion among themselves. You can imagine these, these, aren't, uh, these two disciples are not part of the, the 12. Uh, they're the wider circle of uh, disciples because we're going to get the name of one of them here in a minute, uh, and that name is not one of the 12. And so we know Jesus had the 12, and then he had other disciples. So they're those larger group of disciples. They're having an engaged discussion, wouldn't you? You've just, as a disciple of Christ, seen the whole crucifixion week from the glorious entrance of Christ on the donkey at the beginning of the week down to the shouts of crucify him at the end of the week. You've seen all of this. The Messiah has been crucified. Uh, he's been placed into a tomb, and you're now walking back home dejected because you've lost hope because hope just died. So they're, they're talking among themselves. So I had a kind of fun with myself sitting at my desk thinking, if I was one of these guys, with what I know from the Old Testament and the New Testament, I mean, if I had a buddy walking with me, what would we probably be talking about? What would be our intense discussion? Uh, I think uh, one of them would have said, uh, how in the world could our religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, ever convict and kill Christ? 
with all the evidence that we had to the contrary of who he was. We knew who he was. I'm sure uh, some of them, uh, as they were talking among themselves, must have thought, how can they at the beginning of, this, of the week scream joyously, Hosanna, it's the king, and at the end of the week flip and scream crucify him? How did that happen? Uh, I am sure as they were walking, one of them must have thought, how in the world did Pilate, the great uh, political Roman leader, how did he buckle to Jewish pressure and convict an innocent man? He, he knows he's innocent, but remember he washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. No, no, you're not. How did he buckle? So they're having an intense discussion. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said it well when he wrote these words. He says, in, in pain, he said, but pain insists upon being attended to, does it not, when you have pain? You recognize you have pain, whether it's physical or emotional pain. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What did these men experience? Pain. Everything they understood about the Messiah had just been blown away because he died. And so they have lost, from their perspective, messianic hope. And so they are discussing among themselves the pain. This is their dilemma. How do we get this so wrong? Uh, same principle applies to us today as believers. Uh, to make sure we understand the scripture and don't just pick and choose the passages that we like and downplay the ones that we don't like. Um, no, the, the scripture is quite clear that the Lord is indeed risen. And the text and the history shows this. But you might have pain uh, as, a, as a person. So realize as you look at the pain that you've experienced in your own life, uh, in your marriage, maybe a loss, all these things, God uses all these things as a megaphone to get your attention. And he wants to use the pain of their dashed hopes to then pivot off that to, to give them great hope in the fact that he indeed is risen. He's with them. Same applies to you. Now, I want to give you a spoiler alert. You know what those are? Like a friend's telling you about a great movie and you want to go see it and they divulge the end of the movie to you. Have you had this happen? That's totally not a Christian thing to do. Um, but I'm going to give you a spoiler alert because uh, verse 14 says this. It says, as they were conversing, that's that Greek word that's having an intense discussion with each other about these things, uh, which had taken place. And it came about while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and he began traveling with them. This is mind boggling. I mean, think about this, because I've gone down that road. Uh, now it's a freeway that goes from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv toward Emmaus. Uh, it's a beautiful freeway. It's gorgeous as you're driving through the gorges and everything. Um, you could, this day, it wasn't like a freeway. It's more like a mountain trail. And as they're beginning to walk, they probably heard somebody coming up behind them. You know, another guy with sandals on, with a tunic. And, you know, a Jewish guy. Looks like, you know, any other Jewish guy coming up. I mean, there's travelers walking up and down this road. Either you're either coming from Jerusalem or you're going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is uh, coming up behind them. So I'm sure they heard some footsteps. And uh, I'm sure they were quite shocked when he's going to stop and want to talk with them. They don't even know this guy. Uh, what does this tell you about Jesus? Uh, he came up from behind them. He could have overtaken them. He could have been a faster walker. He is God, correct? <laughs> you seen Mr. Incredible? Yeah, this could have been him, his son. What's his name? Dash. You've seen the movie. This could have been Jesus. <laughs> Gone. No, he came up walking behind him. What does this tell you about Christ? Uh, three things. Number one, uh, he does desire relationship with you. He came walking up behind them to talk to him. Number two, it tells you that he wants to answer your questions that trouble you when you're in an adverse situation. He wants to answer those questions. And number three, uh, he, he cares about your adversity and desires to move you to a better place in your thinking. That's what he's going to do to these two men. That's snapshot number one. And he walks up to them in 
ghost-like form? No, he walked up in bodily form. Bodily form. We'll talk about that as we move along. Snapshot number two. I would call this the divine appointment uh, from this particular perspective. It is indeed a divine appointment because they're going to run into the risen Christ on that road that day. Um, He's going to move them from a state of total confusion as to what just happened in Jerusalem to total understanding, from disbelief to total belief. But he's going to do it in a slow fashion. He could have just walked up behind them, tapped the two guys on the tunic, listening to them discuss the events in Jerusalem of that week. He could have just tapped them on the shoulder and said what? Here I am. Hey, what's going on? (laughs) It's Jesus. Uh, That would have ended, but he didn't do that. Have you ever noticed that sometimes uh, God takes a while to get through to you? Does this happen to you? You know, it's just like, oh, this, you ran into this person, you heard this sermon, you listened to this Bible study, you remember what your grandma taught you, uh, this Bible verse you learned when you were younger, all these things, and God's slowly chipping away at your disbelief to move you to belief. This is how God operates. He takes his time. Uh, this is their a moment of revelation. Verse 16, it says, but their eyes at that moment were prevented from recognizing him. Now, um, the original text was Greek. Uh, and what is interesting, uh, when it talks about the, the verb here, to be prevented, uh, this is where a Greek verb is most important because it could be an active verb where the subject is doing the acting or it could be a passive verb, meaning the subject's being acted on and an, by an outside force. When it says that they were prevented from recognizing him, it's not an active verb because they're not stopping themselves from recognizing him. It's passive. See why you need to learn Greek? I'm just saying. Uh, now it's passive. So I had to ask myself, why is it passive? Well, you have a couple options. They're prevented from recognizing him. By who? <laughs> well, uh, well, it, it wasn't them. It, it's Jesus. Jesus comes behind him and says, no, nah, I'm going to give these guys a few minutes to kind of figure out, you know, what things are. And then I'm going to show them the holes in their thinking. And then I'm going to circle back around and I'm going to give them an aha moment. This is how God works. And that's maybe what he's doing with you today in your disbelief. And so he comes uh, and, and to them, and he uses his divine power to help them see him uh, with them, but not recognize him. And you can also say pragmatically, they probably wouldn't have been looking for him anyway, right? They had just seen the crucifixion. They'd seen him, what that, what that entailed. And so they're not anticipating they're going to run into him. Well, he begins to chip away at their unbelief with a question. Uh, God help you when God asks you questions. I mean, don't you have questions that you want to ask him? Man, when I see him, I got a list. Well, let's see if you remember your list. But, you know, if God were to come to you and start asking you questions, that's kind of a, one of those moments where you take a, like a deep breath or a gulp. Notice Christ's question. And he said to them, while they're having this massive theological discussion, uh, it's kind of, I'm, I'm going to improvise a bit. I was just kind of wondering, like, what are the words that you are exchanging with one another uh, as you're walking? You have to ask yourself a couple questions. Uh, is Jesus omniscient? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If so, then why did he ask that question? He's, didn't he know what they were talking about? I mean, he knew what they were talking about, but he couldn't even hear them talking about it. He's God. He asked them these questions. It's not for him. It's for them. So when God's posing a question to you about your system that you think is airtight, he's going to show you that, well, your system of belief is incoherent. It doesn't hang together. And it, Explain it to me. And as you begin to explain your system, uh, then that's when God steps in through maybe a pastor, maybe a professor, you know, maybe a friend, maybe somebody comes along and says, hey, have you ever considered that, there's, that your position is incoherent? It doesn't logically flow. That's what he's going to do with these men. He's going to come along and say, basically, why are you guys so upset? 
He's going to take it apart. So I would say when he poses this question, there was probably awkward silence. Why? They don't know him. Imagine if you and your best friend are walking down a road, grieving because you just saw what you thought was Messiah crucified, and you're overcome with grief, having this major discussion. Some stranger walks up and goes, hey, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? Wouldn't that be kind of awkward? I mean, when you like both look at each other and go, hey, Yehuda, who's, who's that guy? Uh, and I don't, know, I don't know. I mean, he just asked this question, like what we're talking about. Now, if you tell me the Bible is boring, I will say to you again, read it. It's not boring. It's very actually kind of amusing in some places. Uh, look at Luke 24. It says they stood still looking sad. That's like an understatement. They are like blown away that he's even standing there asking them a question. And so one of them pipes up. He must have been the extrovert. Verse 18. And it says, one of them, his name was Cleopas, uh, answered and said unto him. And we want to stop right there. So Cleopas, he names the guy. Uh, his name in Greek means illustrious father. Perhaps if you're a dad today, this is your name to your children. I am the illustrious father. I mean, something like that. You know, you're like, there's no dad greater than you. They should, you know, t-shirt, you know, awesome dad, that kind of thing. That's his name. This is not going to be one of his finer moments. This is almost like ironic. He's called illustrious father because, you know, he was to his children. But he's, he's you know, it's not going to be so good for him when he begins talking here. Uh, Christ just asked a question. Cleopas steps forward to answer the question. And notice what he says. Have you ever said something to God you wish you could, like, retract? <laughs> Why in the world did I ever say that? Uh, look at the next verse. It says, here's his response to the question from Christ. Are you... You, the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Now, we need to put this into our terminology so we better understand what he just said. He basically told him, is your head in the sand? You, you're coming down from Jerusalem with us? You were there last week? You are clueless about what just happened? What is your problem? I'm adding to the text, of course, but that's basically what he's telling him. I mean... You can say things like, uh, didn't you see the bizarre eclipse at noon on Passover that lasted for three straight hours? Have you ever seen an eclipse like that, pitch black? And, and at three o'clock when the Messiah died on that cross and there was a massive earthquake, you didn't feel it? Where have you, where, where have you been, man? So Jesus then, uh, he could have just said, I am the Lord. <laughs> But he didn't. He still doesn't reveal himself. Remember, he's chipping away at their unbelief. He wants to see what they think. So then he, he poses another question. And this is really interesting. Uh, Jesus said to them, what things? <laughs> huh? This is Christ talking to them. He's asking them, like, what are you guys talking about? Like, like you missed everything? And Christ says, well, what things are you talking about? He was part of all the things. He rode the donkey. He debated the Sadducees and Pharisees on the Temple Mount. I mean, he, he was there for the trial. He was the object of the, of the Roman lictors. I mean, he was there for the whole process. It's kind of interesting. This is interesting. Jesus lovingly brings them out and says, well, what things are you talking about? And notice, this is most interesting. It says, and they said to him. And notice the change in the pronoun. They. They both did this. So one of them has been silent. The other one was doing all the talking. Now they both jump in. Why? They cannot believe this guy is this clueless. 
So notice what they said to him. Both are talking at the same time. You ever been in a foreign country? Is, is this, this, this happens, does it not? I mean, I've seen it happen many times. I mean, they're all talking at the same time, and they all know what each other's saying. Maybe you and your wife can understand this. You know, when you get together with friends. This is what's happening. And, and so they all start talking. They said to him, well, we're talking about the things of Jesus and the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all people, and how, he, how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death, and they crucified him. That's what we're talking about. This is interesting to analyze uh, what they just told him at the same time. Uh, they said the whole week was about Jesus, the Nazarene. Why'd they throw that in? Well, Naz Nazarene is from Nazareth, which is in the Golan Heights. I've been there many times uh, to that little hamlet. It's very congested uh, now, but back then it wasn't. That's where Jesus was raised. So why did they see Jesus the Nazarene? Because his name in Greek, Jesus, uh, um, or the Hebrew word uh, Yeshua, uh, was a common name. It's kind of like John. Got any Johns here? How many Johns do we have here? It's kind of interesting. How many Johns are here? See, they're like, I don't, yeah, yeah, John. Right. So if I was going to specify any of you, I'd be throw John from Springfield. Well, that probably wouldn't work, you know. But I had to throw in some more information. So they throw in, no, no, Jesus the Nazarene. Uh, you know, that's where he was prophesied to be raised. That's where he was raised. We're talking about that Jesus. Um, and they, they then uh, said, well, he was, all, you know, he was not just from Nazareth. Uh, he was a prophet because he did miracles. And we've all seen the miracles. So we know indeed that he was, he was not just ordinary. He was a prophet, but he was the God-man prophet. Notice who they laid the blame on for the crucifixion. They're two Jews. who they lay the blame on? Chief priests and our rulers. The Romans carried it out. They're to blame. But the chief blame rested with the religious leaders. And Jesus verifies this, if you want to check it out, in John chapter 19, verse 11, uh, says as much. Uh, yes, the Gentiles, the goyim, were responsible. They carried out the execution, but he was delivered over by his own people. It's, it's terrible. And so they had great dis despair and disillusionment. Uh, you can see uh, why they were disappointed in verse 21. It says, but, but they, they were being totally open with Christ. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it was the third day since these things happened. I mean, I don't know if you've been with anybody that has died. Uh, if you stick around uh, with the body, it begins to instantly change. I mean, you can see uh, that they've gone from death, from life to death as the body begins to shut down. And then when they die, it, you know, it begins to, rigor mortis starts kicking in. And so they just basically throw in a historical fact. We have so much hope in him. But he's been dead for three days now. There's no way he could ever, ever come back because of rigor mortis. That's what they're saying. They said all our hope was placed in him. Why? Be well, because the prophets had prophesied he'd come and he'd redeem Israel. Um, if you look at uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to, or 68 to 71, verses 71, um, you will find the words of Zacharias, uh, the father of John the Baptist, when God allowed him to speak uh, and give a word. Uh, he talks about how when the Messiah comes, uh, he will do this very thing. He will redeem and save Israel. Where did he get that from? All throughout the Old Testament. So it wasn't like their theological basis was wrong. They, it was just partial. They only wanted the fact of the redemption part of, of, of their enemies, not the fact that Messiah would die. We just finished studying Isaiah 53 for the last couple of weeks, uh, culminating on uh, Good Friday. Uh, that great prophecy is very exact. 
800 years before Christ was, was born, Isaiah prophesied with specificity that the, the Messiah will endure two things, degradation, abandonment by his people. He will bear their sin. He will bear the sin of sinners. He will die an innocent man. He will be resurrected and he will be exalted to, uh, to the heavenlies. That, that was what was prophesied. They didn't want to listen to that part. And so uh, they, were, they were disappointed. They, they also tell Jesus, but there were some women among us. They, they amazed us as the disciples. It says, when they were at the tomb early in the morning, they did not find his body. And they came and they, they said, they also saw a vision of angels uh, who said he was alive. And, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb, like Peter and John, and they found it exactly as the women had said, but, but notice what they didn't throw in. But him they didn't see. What were these two men looking for? I want to see his body. See, these are two men. I want incontrovertible, empirical evidence that he is alive. I've got to see the body. If he's alive, I want to see him. Don't you find this as ironic? Who are they talking to? I mean, think about this. Incontrovertible, empirical evidence is standing in front of them asking them questions. He defeated death. He's alive. Uh, and these men are thinking, well, yeah, I, uh, the women said they didn't see a body. We, we, you know, we didn't see a body. I need to see a body. I need some proof. When proof is standing right in front of them, I, I must, as a side note, just ask you, if you're not a Christian, are you guilty of God sticking truth right in front of you, of his love for you, of your fact that you're a sinner that needs him to Savior, all the evidences of his great resurrection? Is, are you looking past those proofs and just needing more proof? That was these two men. And if you need more proof, there's a great book you can read by Gary Habermas. He's a professor. Uh, his, his specialty is uh, the Christ and his resurrection. He wrote an excellent book called The Case for the Resurrection, where he gives you four uh, uh, arguments that are airtight concerning the historicity of the, of the resurrection event. And then one extra that he says is tenable to a point but could have issues. But four major proofs. It, the book is worth your read, especially since eternity hangs in the balance. These two men said, well, we heard from the women what they saw, but we, since we didn't see a body, we still have questions. Snapshot number three. Uh, Jesus is going to connect the data points for them, divine data points. Notice what it says. And he, Jesus, said to them, he's not going to ask them another question. Now he's going to make a definitive statement. He said to them, not good when God calls you a foolish man. <laughs> oh, foolish man. And of slow to heart to believe. Another way to say hard-headed. Uh, in all that the prophets have spoken, he's going to then ask him a question. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Answer to the question? Well, Lord, yeah, the, the, the answer is yes. We, we forgot Isaiah 53. We were focused on all the kingdom passages, like I, uh, you know, Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 9. We, we were focusing on those. Yes, true, Lord. Um, so what did Jesus do? As they're walking, beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Wouldn't you have liked to have been part of that Bible study? <laughs> Imagine the resurrected Lord is standing there walking with you. You're walking, you know, the seven miles in, into Emmaus, and he's giving you a Bible lesson. He's going to start with Moses. So he's going to start with the Pentateuch. He's going to start in Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's going to go through the, 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 the Torah. He's going to go through the prophets. And he's going to show them the, 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 how erroneous their position is. That all throughout the Old Testament, his mission to go to the cross and then be resurrected is, is woven through the Torah and through the prophets. Uh, I'll give you, a, this will be a sermon series for another uh, day. 
or weeks or years. But consider this. I'll give you a few things to think about. Like, what, I mean, what might have Jesus talked about? Well, uh, he could have said, uh, well, man, I am the seed that was prophesied uh, that, that in Genesis 3 that Satan would, would strike my heel, but I would strike his head and destroy him. That's me, Genesis 3.15, said that I would die. Um, he, he could have said, I, I'm, I'm the greater Joseph, who was betrayed by his own brothers, who came back later and forgave them all and showed grace and love to them. I'm the greater Joseph. Uh, he could have said, uh, I'm Shiloh, uh, the king from Jer uh, Genesis 49, verses 10 to 12, uh, who would come and bring peace from the line of Judah. That, that's me, I'm Shiloh. Uh, he could have gone to Deuteronomy 18 and said, Moses prophesied that the prophet would come. I'm the greater prophet. I'm the, the prophet. That's me. Uh, he, he could have said, I am the star and the scepter prophesied in uh, Numbers 24, 16 to 24, that would arise over the, uh, over the entire world and bring justice, which lacks in our world, and shalom, peace. That's me. I'm that star of hope. Uh, he could have said, uh, I'm the burnt offering, Leviticus chapter 1. He, said, he could have said, I am the day of atonement goat offering for Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. That's me. Um, he could have said, um, I am the Passover lamb. I am all of these things. Uh, he, he could have told them that he was the Davidic branch that would arise from the stump of the D David's tree that the Babylonians had destroyed in 586, uh, but was prophesied that a branch would come out of the Davidic tree, and this no-name branch would be the Messiah in his kingdom, and it would grow and fill the earth, and he would be the king of kings. That's me. Uh, he could have said, I am the son of man that, uh, that um, Daniel prophesied uh, in his prophecy, who would come and strike at the feet of all world empires and destroy all world empires and replace all inferior empires with my empire. That's me. Imagine that Bible study lesson. You think they asked him any questions? Probably not. He took them throughout the whole Old Testament and showed to them, men, you have a lopsided view of theology. I had to first come and die, and then I would be resurrected. You need to pay attention to that. How could they have missed that point? He could have easily turned to them and said, you guys don't understand what you're reading? You've had your head in the sand? No. He says, let me lovingly tell you the story of the Old Testament and how God planned to redeem sinners. When you, when you look at your own life, um, uh, do you understand this? The prophetic proofs. Uh, they're all through the Old Testament. Uh, no way one man could control all those different prophecies, 333 of them, to make them all come about because only God could come do this. I said uh, and for Good Friday, and I'll say to you again, uh, why did Christ have to come? Uh, because sin against uh, an infinite God who's holy needs an infinite God to come pay for that sin. That's why he had to come. He's the God man. They didn't realize it. So he had to rise from the dead to destroy sin and death. Snapshot number four is most interesting when you get to the end of the story. It says, as they approached the village where they were going, he acted as though he would go farther. And they urged him saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. This is, this is just unbelievable. Could you imagine if you invited Jesus over to your house for dinner? Is the house clean? <laughs> I mean, I, did I mow the lawn? You know, I mean, is it squared away? Do we have enough food? I mean, they're bringing this guy in that they still don't know who it is, but they're thinking to themselves, man, does he know the Torah? Does he know the Old Testament? I mean, this guy's unbelievable. I mean, we got to sit and talk to him more. And so they invited him, invite him into the house and he accepts that invitation. What does this tell you about Christ? 
Well, it tells you again that he wants to have a relationship with you. He, he wants to come into your house, your life, and fellowship with you. Uh, book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. Christ says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man opens the door, I will come in and have supper with him. Fellowship. He goes in uh, with these men, and he, he accepts the offer. We don't know whose house he went into, one of them. Uh, and uh, he, he walks in, in in a body. He has a body. Uh, because uh, they, they see him as such to, to the point where they could have dinner with him. In uh, verse 39, uh, if you skip down to verse 39 in chapter 24, uh, Jesus tells the disciples, because these two disciples are going to eventually run back uphill and tell the other disciples, we just saw Christ. We saw the body. And notice what Christ says to the disciples, the 11 disciples. Well, it's probably 10 because uh, Judas isn't there and Thomas wasn't there. But Christ tells his disciples, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. You can do what? You can touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why was he showing them his hands and his feet? Well, they could see the scars of the nails. And indeed, it was the Christ. So we know he was sitting in front of these disciples, uh, these two men, uh, in bodily form, because later he's going to tell them, look at my hands and my feet. It says in verse 30, it came about when they had reclined at the table uh, with them, he took the bread and he blessed it, breaking it, and began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. This is most exciting. He sat down with them to have a meal with them. This is not, because it has similar language to communion, this is not communion. This is just him sitting down and breaking bread with them. I wonder what caused them to recognize who it was. And why in the world is he a guest taking control of the dinner, right? Like if you invite me over with my wife and you invite us into your house and you expect us to get up and cook the meal, <laughs> not appropriate, right? They're looking at him thinking, this is an amazing rabbi. Man, we, man could you lead us? Could, could you serve us? And he's like, oh, absolutely. Don't you know when he grabbed the first piece of bread and broke it, and I don't know if it was Roman meal, whatever it was, <laughs> takes the bread, breaks the bread, and hands it to them. What did they see when they see his hand? What do they see? A scar, a big one. And they see the scar. Now, you probably don't know this, not knowing Jewish cultural history, but they sat at a table called a triclinium. A triclinium was a U-shaped table. It's very low to the ground. Didn't have chairs like we do. That's a Western concept. A triclinium is everybody lays down like on pillows with an arm and you can reach for the grapes and things, which means your feet are out behind you with your tunic so that everybody can see your feet. I wonder if while they looked at the hands, they didn't, didn't, didn't look down at his sandals. Wow, there's scars on his feet too. Looks like this guy's been crucified. I wonder if it was his voice when he began to break and bless the bread that they're like, wow, does this sound familiar? I wonder if it was his face as they saw into the face of love looking at them. I wonder if all of those things combined gave him that aha moment, probably. At that precise moment, uh, they saw who he was. Did he stick around to have a further theological discussion with them? I mean, what did he do? What's it say he did? Vanished. He vanished. Well, I thought he was there in bodily form. Was he? Yeah, yeah. But his body, his resurrected body, is not like anything we can even understand because it's like transdimensional. 
Because you and I are stuck in this dimension. You know this, right? You're stuck here in this dimension. But when you one day get a body like his body, if you're his child, it's that kind of body. You can be in this dimension or you can be in the spiritual dimension at will. He's there, he's not there. And later he's going to appear with the disciples in a locked room and just appear. You can't stop him. And so he has this, ama- this amazing body that just vanishes from their sight. What did they do? It says in verse 32, this is a major understatement. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You know, here's the thing. When God finally answers all your theological questions that disturb you and bother you, and you can't connect the dots, when you finally hear somebody, read something, listen to something, etc., you, you finally have that moment where God connects all the dots for you, I can tell you that's exactly what happens to you, because it happened to me. All of a sudden, your disbelief evaporates, and you have that aha moment, I finally have the answers. Yes, he was resurrected in time and space, and he, and he died on that cross for me, and he rose for me, and I want him to be my savior. Moving from uncertainty to certainty. Maybe some of you might need to do that today. Say, God, forgive me uh, for not paying attention, and thanks for the questions that caused me to see who you are. Uh, who are you going to meet in heaven when you get there? You're going to probably re- run into uh, the illustrious father, and his sidekick, whatever his name was. And because you'll have the, name, the mind of Christ, you know exactly who they are. But uh, as you study the resurrection event, may your heart burn within you as God gives you the answers. Because you as a Christian have all the answers to the, the, the reason why people don't have hope today. Because it gives you hope on what lies ahead. And it starts with a relationship with the risen Christ. Uh, I am a Christian because of the facts that I see. And I am certain that I serve a risen Savior. And if you serve a risen Savior, uh, you have the greatest hope to share with others. Have a happy Easter. Uh, enjoy the time with your family today. And thank you for uh, being here for the early service. You're truly spiritual. Uh, and I thank you. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. God, we uh, bow before you in humility, thanking you for the fact you were most gracious and merciful to us. Uh, you condescend to our level, uh, even down to asking us questions on a dusty road. And you answer those questions Uh, to lead us to yourself, to a greater understanding of who you are. Uh, You came to redeem us. We thank you for that redemption if we know you. For those who don't know you, might this be the day they have a spiritual birthday by humbling themselves before your throne. And indeed, you are alive, alive forevermore, and stand ready to forgive sinners of sin. In Christ's name, amen. Happy Easter.